This is Not Quite Dead, a gal pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies, but sometimes we really just like to keep it shallow. I'm your host, Kate. I'm Megan. Get ready for all the spoilers. One of the most surprising things about this movie is that Hank from Breaking Bad is in it. That's really funny. He's the only guy I recognized in this movie. But I was like, oh, cool. He's getting some work. He's just like a sweet, sweet, hardworking single dad. I love it. You know, it was a bit role. I mean, this movie is so teen and kid oriented that the adults are just kind of roadblocks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for the plot, for the for most real. part. So he doesn't get a lot of airtime, but I do like Dean Norris. I think he's a great actor and was, yeah, was glad to see him um, in something post-Breaking Bad. So I don't know any of these kids, but I thought they were all excellent. And I really hope they do more work, especially Stella. I love the girl who played Stella. I totally agree. I think that for this being a cast of relatively unknown teen actors and this being a movie for teens, you would maybe expect the acting to be a little subpar, maybe a little like CW style acting, but I felt like they did a good job. I was impressed with them and would would like to see them in more things. And this movie kind of sets itself up for a sequel. There's... No end to the amount of sequels you could have. It feels like the kind of universe you could just pluck little short stories from and build a new tale altogether. Like, we don't actually need a follow-up to these guys. It'd be kind of cool to just have a new story, a new movie made with different stories from these books. You just go so many directions with it. I would love that. That would be so cool because... Maybe one of my bigger complaints about scary stories to tell in the dark, <laughs> the movie, Hey-o. that there are so many good stories and I just wanted story after story after story. And so my complaint here is that I felt like some of the stories were maybe shoehorned a little bit into the plot and I would have loved to have seen the stories be the star of the show with plot just kind of supporting it or either just an anthology style series or something that showcases these stories. Yeah, let's get a quick plot summary for this movie that would probably be better left as a limited series or otherwise. (laughs) Uh, Can you imagine HBO taking this on? Oh man, that'd be so good. So scary. Okay, so this movie takes place in 1968 there's a group of nerd kids (laughs) who have a very classic nerd nerd versus jock standoff with local small town bully after playing a prank on this local bully uh, the kids are chased into a spooky abandoned house where they discover a mysterious book And when reading this book, they realize that pages that were previously blank are now filling with scary stories. 
uh, about people in their town. And so these kids are trying to figure out uh, where did the book come from? How do they stop these stories from happening? And uh, what is the central mystery of Sarah Bellows, the the woman in their town who was uh, accused of witchcraft and is ostensibly the author of these stories? I'm glad you brought up the anthology request because I was thinking the same thing. In fact, I wrote down my own plot summary for this movie because I was watching it and I was like, what actually is the driver here? Do And do I care? And I had to sit and, and think about it for a minute. And I just wrote, this I don't really care about. I think the plot is so secondary to the stories. And I think the stories are so compelling that I just, I don't know. I thought that the plot around it was fine. I thought that they made some interesting choices with the time period and the setting, but I would, I would love to just see more focus on the stories and kind of telling these stories as like true start to finish stories because in their iteration in this movie, they're, a lot of them are just like parts of the stories being kind of chopped up and like used to move the plot forward. Right. And the artwork really drove the character design. We should start with the setting. They chose an interesting time. It's not a current time period type of movie. They purposely set us back in 1968. I was really wondering why they chose the 60s the best guess that I had was that there's no technology like they don't have computers or phones really in this movie yeah I mean how else are we gonna get that great montage of kids doing really intense investigative work at their local library I like that 1968 is the year that Night of the Living Dead came out that's kind of a cool little touch. But other than that, you're right. I think it's it feels like a technology move. There's a specific event that is woven into the plot and comes up multiple times. And that's the Vietnam War. Which, I mean, why? <laughs> that is my overall feeling towards them using the Vietnam War. I was like, oh, okay, so the real horror all along is the American, <laughs> you know, uh, imperialism complex, I guess. And I really thought the way it was going to end was going to be like, hey, you did the right thing. Like, you, war sucks, man. Like, we shouldn't get drafted anyway. And so I, I didn't understand why that was the resolution there. What were we supposed to get from that? Yeah. So this character, Ramon, he's a drifter in town, which I, okay. So I do think that drifter in town is a 60s kind of thing, right? Like, I don't think that you get drifters after like 1980 in movies. That made sense to to introduce like a kind of new third party into this group of kids, lend a little bit more drama. Um, the fact that he was a draft dodger is interesting. It just felt like it was maybe too much plot or something. Yeah. I, I thought that they could have reworked it so that he was just a new kid in school who these kids met mm -hmm. and he and his family have shame because his brother dodged the draft or something, right? Like it 
doesn't have to be this whole character arc that he goes through where he now enlists in order to resolve his arc. I hated his arc, actually. (laughs) I know. His arc is terrible. And I feel like they just put a lot onto this character because not only was he being targeted for being a stranger in town, they're also super racist towards him because he's Mexican. They paint wet back all over his car. It's so rude. The town bullies completely like destroy his car. They smash out the windows. They paint like slurs on it. The cop is very suspicious of him and does that very kind of condescending, you know, amigo kind of chat (laughs) with him. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just really like dunking on this kid in this movie. And then they send him to Vietnam at the end. Yeah. And he's happy about it. Whenever people pick a time period, I have this suspicion and it's not validated anywhere, (laughs) but I always have this suspicion that it's because they just like the music from that time period. And for this movie, I felt like they got stuck on the song Season of the Witch Yes, which is a good song. It's a great song that maybe gets me a little too much use, especially in the opening. Like they played the whole song kind of as they're introducing us to all the characters and the setting and whatnot. You know, I think it's like similarly to the Fear Street movies um, taking place in the 90s and having a very, very aggressively 90s soundtrack and then going back into the 70s at the camp scene and having a lot of very 70s music um, involved in it. Just really, maybe it's a trend of this kind of late uh, 20-teens, early 2020s time period where there's a lot of like just music rights available or something and so it's a very quick and dirty way to like set a tone set a time and place you know you put your like these kids in period appropriate clothing and then you play season of the witch over it and then like you don't have to do a lot else to the setting to make it seem like it's the 60s yeah music and costuming can do a lot for you this director, though, um, he, I, I don't think he's done other time periods. He His name is uh, Andre Ouvredal, and he's done a couple of other movies. One is The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Okay. Yeah, which is a horror movie on Netflix. Uh, I actually really enjoyed that movie. And Troll Hunter, which Troll Hunter is a wild movie. It is this Norwegian satire movie of people who... It's kind of like a mockumentary almost about people who are hunting giant trolls in the Norwegian forest. Oh, wow. <laughs> when did that come out? Uh, years ago, like 20, uh, I think 2010s. Okay. I've seen The Autopsy of Jane Doe, and I think that one also makes use of recordings in it, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, like patient recordings. I thought the recordings in this were very corny. They did not feel real at, at all. This is kind of their workaround on the technology, right? Is they have these like wax canisters or whatever it is that had the recordings of Sarah Bellows. That these kids were able to break into. <laughs> they weren't at a library. They broke into a psychiatric ward. Well, they did have a library montage. They had both. Okay. So we're good. There's a lot of places that they go to. Yeah. I mean, they need to have settings for each of these crazy stories that are pulled from the book. Yes. Let's talk about the adaptation 
And I want to start by asking, did you read these books when you were a kid? Oh my God, yes. All of them. I had them all. I had a loft in my room and a lot of my books were kept up there and stuffed animals and things. So I would just go up there and read. And that was a frequent go-to were these books. Even when I got older, I mean, they're so easy to read, but they're really great horror nuggets. I loved these books when I was a kid. I think that this was probably not the first horror book series I read. Make sure to listen to our Goosebumps episode. Mm -hmm. But I loved these stories and I I reread them many times over. It was so funny because I felt like some of the stories were not scary, but I would have to put my hand over the the illustration accompanying it while I was reading it. The stories are actually not written all that well. I reread them all before we recorded this. And book two, I think, was where the story started to get a little bit more finessed. What was great about them was that they came with the artwork. The artwork was what would get into your head and you'd read and you'd picture this horrifying I don't know, a horse with a human eye wearing high heels. <laughs> like, like that's what you would picture. It sounds funny when you describe it, but when you see this stuff, it's like nothing you would have ever seen before. I felt like the drawings were so evocative because they had that really scribbled, scrawly texture to them. I think that they're only in black and white. Mm-hmm. It just really spooked me. Reading the stories Again, I've reread a handful of them. I haven't actually sat down to read through the books end to end again as an adult, but I have, you know, gone back to to look for a specific story or something and, and ended up on the Scary Stories fandom wiki where you can reread them. Yeah, they're all available for free. Yeah, they're much shorter than you would expect. Yeah. Um, they're not very good, but those illustrations like just made them seem so much scarier. And then later in the books, Stephen Gamble's illustrations get Dolly-esque almost. They're just crazy ideas you might have during a nightmare, but now they're on paper. And that's what his drawings feel like. They feel like a nightmare when you're looking at them. This guy has done tons of children's books. And his other artwork does not look scary. (laughs) It doesn't look like this. Yeah. I mean, it's got that messy aesthetic to it, you know, like scribbles or um, where it looks like maybe he's used a straw to like blow some ink out randomly, things like that, like that sort of stuff you'll catch in his illustrations. But he does illustrations for just, you know, straight kids novels that are not scary at all. That's wild. Really cool guy. Really cool body of work. Did you have any? Did you have a? I was just going to ask you. Uh, my favorite story. Yeah. What's your favorite story? <laughs> um. Okay. So the story that I thought was my favorite was probably also one of the ones I thought was the scariest, which was the story about the babysitter. Uh, and this is just like a retelling of an urban legend, right? It's the babysitter who's getting called and she's getting called like over and over again. This is just me recollecting from when I was a kid. The calls are creeping her out, but she like kind of waits a long time before she finally calls 911. And I don't know how they do this, but the operator is able to look at incoming calls that have come into the house. It's like not a thing, but like the operator like looks at it and it's like, you need to get out, like 
get the kids and get out of there because the call is coming from inside yes. the house. <laughs> and that was the first like time I had ever been exposed to that urban legend. Very Scream. And I certainly read this before I saw Scream. My favorite they actually featured in the movie, which was the red oh. spot. That's the spider bite one. Yes. Oh, man. That one, I probably still think about it, not every month or whatever, but on a regular basis, it pops into my head. I mean, we saw it in the movie, right? But in, in the book, a spider lands on her face at night while she's sleeping and lays eggs and moves along. And she has no idea. She just wakes up with a spot on her face. By that evening, she's like, I need to go to the doctor. Like, this is really bad. And it pops in the bathroom and it ends with just baby spiders all over her. And I, oh my God, the thought of that happening to me while I'm asleep, can't do anything about it, is what really freaked me out. For a while, I would it's like so check the gross. mirror. Yeah. I remember that one because not every story got its own illustration, but the red spot does have its own illustration. Yeah. And I remember that one. It's all, all the spiders face. coming out. <laughs> I loved how they worked it into the movie. I was so happy to see it come alive. And it was awful. <laughs> it looked just as awful as I could have imagined. I do think that the Red Spot story in the movie is probably one of my favorite things that they pull into the adaptation because I felt like the effects were actually really decent. Yes. In that scene. The tension in the movie as like, she's like, oh, I've got this pimple. And like, they keep on making fun of her because she's like older sister, beauty queen kind of trope. And uh, they keep making fun of her for like putting makeup over her huge zit. And you know, you know, it's coming because it's such a famous story. Okay. Because she's sitting in the staging area. She's in Bye Bye Birdie getting ready to go on stage and her co-stars are like, um, you've got to do something about that <laughs> on your face. <laughs> but at the time, it didn't look that bad. I thought I was like, okay, it's mostly covered. It's a little red, but like, that's as good as she's going to get it. I was like, why are you going to the bathroom to pop this thing? It's just going to make a huge crater on your face and you'll never get it cleaned up, even if it is a zit. I really wish they had let her go out on the stage with it and have the spider burst there. Ooh, that would be good. Ugh. Ah, yeah, that would have been oh, really good. Oh, man, so yeah. gross. The whole Ooh, audience traumatic. in on it. Ugh. Yes. I mean, by the time it is about to pop, it's pretty disgusting and pretty scary when she's like, I mean, it's so so typical teenager stuff, right? When you're like, I have this huge zit and I'm about to go out somewhere, so I just need to pick at it. <laughs> yeah. so it'll go away and as she's like picking at it it gets like bigger Ugh. and like wider and then like the spider leg poking out of it and moving and then she Horrible. touches it and it moves more oh my gosh and then you see the babies underneath the skin moving around right before they pop out it's like alien yes. it's awful uh, this movie had a good number of the stories represented in some way I was thinking about, and I did look this up, how many stories are in each book? And there's like 20 plus stories in each book. And I think in the movie, there's five-ish stories represented in, in some ways. I counted seven and one song, which was okay. the Hearst song. Okay. When they meet, they meet like Lulu. the clairvoyant. Yeah. 
and um, she's singing the the Hearst song. I, I did like the songs. You know, I never read the songs when I read the books because I couldn't read music. So I'd read the <laughs> yeah. poem and then I'd be like, okay, that was fine. And then I'd move on. But I'd never reread the song. Yeah, that's how I felt too. So it was nice to hear them to music in the movie or to hear the Hearst song to music in the movie. Let's go through our main characters and how they experience these different adaptations. Each character kind of went through a trial, or I guess we could call it a trial. They have a story written about them, and that story is comprised of one of these adaptations. The first kid in this who actually gets the scary story treatment is Tommy. And he is not part of our friend group. He's the bully. Yeah, I uh, I was pretty happy to see him get heralded. It was pretty great. <laughs> and I had kind of forgotten about Harold, the the story. So it was fun to go back and reread it. But they kept they kept fairly true to it. I remembered the Harold story because that one has an illustration as well. And I and I remembered it when seeing. <laughs> the scarecrow in this movie because I felt like they did a good job of making the face kind of look lumpy and vaguely evil. (laughs) Very Stephen Gemmel. (laughs) Oh man. And he's covered in like cockroaches and they're weaving in and out of his eyes and stuff. It's so gross. It's really gross. I never thought that corn was scary. Until I moved to Colorado and and did an actual corn maze. <gasps> They're so <laughs> the, fun. I think it was maybe the first or second year we were living in Colorado. There's this farm that's like kind of in the sticks, and they have thousands of acres of corn. And so they do two corn mazes. They have one for kids and families during the daytime, and then they have a haunted corn maze at night. And so we did the haunted corn maze at night, and I don't think that there was a moon or it was just like a little sliver of a moon if there was one and I was like oh fuck (laughs) like I understand now (laughs) and that's a maze this kid is like just out in the middle of a (laughs) cornfield there's like no walls or anything no no it's so scary uh so I I really um empathize with this kid now (laughs) this setting is also handled in in the tall grass yeah yeah Yeah, that was scary I I think fields of tall anything are very frightening you also see it in signs there's just so many places to hide evil things so I thought it was a really great first story and I really loved watching Tommy transform into a scarecrow I did too I loved a couple of things about this I loved that Tommy, someone who's grown up on this farm, he knows this farm. He he cuts through it to get to a neighbor's house while drunk. Uh, that's how that's how well he knows this, right? He's like, oh yeah, I could just like cut through the corn and get there. Um, he gets turned around in what seems like a supernatural way, and every time he gets turned around, he keeps running into Harold again. Loved that, and I loved that Harold just straight up spears him through the chest. I liked watching the straw come out of his mouth and his eyes and his ears and his nose and how he just couldn't do anything to stop it. It was so horrifying. It was great. There's no gore in this movie. So this movie is rated PG-13. Yeah. So there's no blood. Uh, I mean, there's blood in in the the pages of the book are, are written in blood. 
but there's no blood in the deaths. There's no, there's no gore. So I think that they get clever, especially with this one, because where he gets speared, uh, he has hay coming out instead of Very blood clever. or anything. It is clever. I, I, I did like this one. So this may be my favorite, if not my favorite story. I think that in terms of death and like adaptation into the movie, I really liked liked it. And I was glad that this was the first one that we got. Yeah, next was Augie, who uh, got stuck with the big toe and also a little bit of the haunted house. Yeah, I uh, I have some gripes with this scene in the movie. Okay. <laughs> my gripe with this scene in the movie is a microcosm of my gripe with the movie as a whole, maybe, which I think that the plot is okay. The kids are doing their damnedest with their acting, but the dialogue really sucks in some scenes. And in this scene, Stella is trying to, to talk to Augie over walkie-talkies, and she just keeps crying Augie's name over and over and over. And she's like, don't eat anything, don't eat anything. As they're reading a story that's like, there's a toe in the stew. And I'm like, why aren't you saying Augie don't eat the stew. There's a toe in it. I was like, you're wasting so much time here. I'm wondering if she thought the book wasn't actually that specific yet. But I think she should have known by then, right? Because Harold, like, had those specifics happen to him. But uh, people never behave the way they should when they're in panic mode, do they? Yeah. And I, like... I don't, I don't know why this scene was really getting to me because I'm like, I don't even want to give her that. I think it was just annoying <laughs> how how many times she was crying yeah. Augie's name because she says Augie so many times. And I'm like, even if you don't think it's that specific, throw some specifics out there. Sure, Like yeah. just anything other than saying Augie's name again. Because then when she runs into the house with Ramon – she keeps on crying for Augie's name, and I just like not into it. Um, I did think that the stew super gross. Oh my god, <laughs> that made me wretch <laughs> when he oh, pulled. Really? Yeah, I have a couple times where I wretched in this movie. Actually, um, when he's pulling the toe out of his mouth, that's when I I had to look away because I it made me sick. Like the first time I saw it. Uh, the second time, which has already happened in the plot by now, is when Chuck fishes turds out of the toilet bowl to throw at the bullies. That oh, made me sick. Yeah, that was really gross. And that's not even like from a story. That's just a gross thing they added to this oh, I movie. Know. <laughs> I know. It was a funny way to start. It was like setting the tone of what kind of kids these were and what was going on. But I hated it. And then the third time I had a gross out factor, I didn't retch over this one, but it was that zit. It was how big that zit was and the thought of it popping really gross. You know, like that uh, mad magazine, the zit comic. That's yeah. what it made me think of. <laughs> but um, Big Toe, that's the story where the kid finds a toe in the garden, brings it home. Father cuts it into three pieces and they eat it for dinner <laughs> until they get attacked by the entity wanting their toe back um but we also saw some artwork from the haunted house it's that that woman right with the raggedy face 
That's actually yes. from a different story. So I counted that as a second second oh, adaptation. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense because I think in the in the toe story, it is that like entity like wants its toe back, right? But then they just kind of combined right. it with this woman who then yeah. yanks him under the bed. Yeah. Very poltergeisty. The next kid, I mean, all of these kids in this group, it's like almost like a one by one are getting it. Yeah. It's like final destination <laughs> for kids. Yeah. It's like any person who was in the house is really getting it. Yeah. Yeah. So we see Chuck. This is when they've broken into the psychiatric hospital looking for records on Sarah Bellows. He's in the red room, which I thought it was pretty clever that it's the mm-hmm. records and like oh, I didn't write it down or I something. I remembered that it was a depot and I was like, deep I was like, mm, <laughs> depot's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> you have just said department. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a simultaneous thing going on where Stella and Ramon are listening to the records that we mentioned earlier. And instead of them reading from the book uh, about Chuck's attack, Sarah in the past is talking about Chuck in the red room being attacked by the pale lady. And I thought that that was pretty creepy. That oh, I Sarah loved was it. somehow able to like project into the future that these kids were going to be listening to her and relay this story. Yeah. I thought that was great. A nice, like, weird touch to throw in there. And I loved Chuck. I was actually very sad when he got it. Chuck is the funniest of the kids. <laughs> he's so funny. I think he's such a crack up. I really disliked this scene because I felt like the pale lady is, like, one of the really iconic illustrations from the book. And I felt like they should have used, like, practical effects or something. The CGI just really took me out of it. Oh, man. That's funny. I really loved this scene. This was the one that scared me the most watching it. I felt like Chuck. Chuck is alone because he was afraid of the Red Room because now the kids have figured out, oh, these things are, are feeding on our existing fears and I'm not touching that red room because I've had a dream about it. So he gets mm-hmm. left behind, but it doesn't really work out for him because what what happens is the room literally goes red and you see this pale woman. It's the illustration from the dream. And that's the only that and I would say the title, right, are the only ties to the to the actual book. But she's mm-hmm. walking down one hallway towards him, just regular pace, really slow. But he can see her from a distance and every hallway he turns down, she's there coming at him, getting closer and closer and closer. And she can't get away until she finally swallows him with her own body. And you see her up close. And Kate, I mean, I know it was CGI. I I thought they had done a really, really good job. And I (laughs) hated looking at her face. I was so creeped out by her. It was so good. I just couldn't, I could not get over this character. I really loved her a lot. Oh, that's so funny. I love it when we have such different opinions about something because I felt like they were really trying. Like I felt like they had given her skin this kind of wet or like waxy look and she was like very melted looking with these like sunken black eyes and her hair is so long and stringy and She's very gross looking, but 
I don't know. The CGI was just taking me out of it. I, I think I just wanted more yeah. practical effects in this movie in general um, because I felt like not all of the CGI was like top notch. And I feel like when there's CGI in a horror movie, it either needs to be like really good or they should be trying to like maybe mask it a little bit, which I will give them credit for that the red room effect of the mm. emergency lights, like painting like the hallway, that totally red color made her look more realistic. The other thing about her that's really creepy is that she's not menacing. Other than the fact that she's walking towards you, she smiles the whole time. There's just something really unsettling about it. It is unsettling. I remember not liking looking at the illustration as a kid. I remember just being like, no, thank you. Like (laughs) there's something benevolently malevolent about her. Like she's like going to kill you, but she's going to be like friendly about it because she like hugs him into her body. Yeah. I will agree with you though that I'm sure having practical effects would have looked better, even better, even better. than what you even didn't like. better yeah <laughs> but for me as well I I'm with you there it wasn't the worst like I don't know maybe my expectations were too high I just felt like okay like that was fine it took me out of it a little bit for like what this movie is I guess I'm just glad it wasn't like the witches you know <laughs> like the new version of the sure. witches I'm very yes. happy we didn't have that <laughs> Um, that leaves us with Ramon Ramon yes Ramon also had a two stories rolled into one experience. So I did not recall which stories um, oh. were related to Ramon. I I know that one of them is ch- – it's like as he's coming down the chimney, but I don't know what the other one is. Yeah. The first one is Me Tai Do Tai Walker, and that's – I mean, you hear the character say – repeat this over and over. The other thing that happens in that m- story – is that the dog is sitting there and the dog talks back to the voice calling out because the voice calls out first and then it and then the head appears and the the dog says something like lynchy kinchy collie molly dingo dingo something like this and i i couldn't tell what the dog was kind of huffing in the movie but i was like whatever i appreciate that they worked in the dog responding like because that's creepy okay, yeah then the second story that's sort of wrapped into this is what do you come for and that is uh it's it's a small bit but the rest of the body parts falling up into the chimney and then reassembling themselves is something that comes from that story what do you come mm. for so they kind of merged okay. those two. I loved the way he merged into a, like a trapezoid of a person. Like it, what he is makes no sense. Yeah. It's so creepy. I did like how he pulled himself together and he was just like huge and unnatural. Like he's really big when yeah. he pulls himself together too. And he could shift around to squeeze through bars and move his head. It was great. I thought that was really great character design. I like that this movie doesn't shy away from killing characters, Mm -hmm. even though it is a PG-13 movie, um, because I just kept on being surprised that characters were actually getting killed. When he assembles his body, he's big and scary, and he comes up upon the (laughs) racist police officer from earlier and just snaps his neck. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. He does not waste any time. It's so good. Yeah, no, it's good because it's menacing. I feel like 
sometimes in these horror movies that are more geared towards kids, uh, they will they'll build the tension, but then they shy away from the actual execution on it. So I appreciated that. Yeah. And then we get Stella and Stella doesn't have a story. Stella's not connected to the original novels. Well, collection of short stories at all, which I didn't care for. Yeah, I I don't like what they did with Stella because I don't like this element of the story. I thought it was very unnecessary that Stella was somehow able to travel or see back in time to see what happened to Sarah and her family. I just I was like, why yeah. is there time travel in this? Why is there or this weird like prescience into the past? I just give her a story. <laughs> just yeah. give her something. Yeah. She was amazing when they were dragging her down into the cellar. Her screaming and crying was so real. I thought it was excellent. But after that, she's like, oh, okay, so I can see Sarah now and I can just talk to her. We'll talk it out. I hate that. <laughs> Not great. Yeah, that's where I felt like the plot you said at the beginning of the episode, you know, like what what is the driving force? Like what do we care about? And I felt like that's like why the ending kind of flops is because they're like how are we going to wrap this up? Like we kind of wrote ourselves into this plot corner. How is Stella going to resolve this with Sarah and they just talk about it where she's like I'll tell your story as long as you stop hurting people. And I was like, why? (laughs) Why is this working? And the ghost just goes for it. And I'm like, why couldn't this just happen sooner? (laughs) Why did this take so long to happen? It just seemed like a really easy way to fix the problem. And Like all these kids are sucked into some netherworld or they're dead or whatever happened to them because she hadn't had a story written about her yet, I guess. It just seemed very arbitrary. Yeah, not not good payoff. And of course, Stella and Ramon make it and Ramon gets shipped to Vietnam where he'll die anyway. Okay, so I thought it was so funny at the end. They kind of leave it open for a sequel, a direct sequel, because Stella says, I I wrote the story and like people also didn't believe me, but I think Sarah's happy and I'm going to figure out a way to get Chuck and Augie back. And I was like, yeah, because fuck Tommy. He gets to stay a scarecrow. I know. (laughs) Can't say Tommy because the straw has punctured his lungs. So sorry. I know. (laughs) Well, who do you recommend this movie for age-wise? It's a good question because I do think that there are some elements that are scary enough that, I mean, PG-13 is, you know, if your kid's under 13, you're going to want parental guidance. And even if they're a little over 13, um, so I would say like middle school age and up, like 12 and up seems fine. Yeah. What do you think? I think so too. I would say like follow the the MPA rating on this one. But if you have a kid who likes horror and they're younger than that, totally cool to let them see this. There's no sex. There's no cursing. There's very little violence, actually. Very little. It's just a big creep factor. So mm-hmm. if your kid is cool with that kind of stuff, they're not going to get nightmares, then I say go for it. You'll see one drop of blood exit somebody's body and that's it for the blood 
blood score. <laughs> if you have a kid who's into creepy stuff, I think that maybe starting them with the books. Oh, yeah. And seeing how they do with the books because I think your imagination when you're a kid oh, yeah. is so vivid. And I feel like if you have a little little freak like us who's <laughs> super into these books, they can definitely handle the movie. I don't think that the movie – I mean, we're watching this movie as adults, so who knows. But I think that your mind just takes these stories combined with these illustrations and just runs wild with them. And so your kid would be fine. If you can handle the drawings, you can handle this movie. I think I was reading those books since I was like seven or eight. I feel like I was maybe around the same age when I was exposed to them too. I think that <laughs> depending on your kid's tolerance level, either uh, eight <laughs> or <Yeah>. 13. <laughs> and if you like horror movies with your kid, this is an excellent one for the two of you. There's no awkward love scenes and it's just good spooky fun. Yeah, it's a good like entry level horror movie. I think that there's not many horror movies in this category that feel like it's actually creepy but could be tolerable for a kid to watch. And so it does a good job of straddling that line. Kate, we have to talk crafts for this movie. Are you ready for this? The craft for this movie, Megan. <laughs> I'm ready. Do you want me to talk about mine first? <laughs> Kate, I want to hear about this flashlight with the extra large cup on the end of it. Okay. <laughs> so when starting this craft, Megan had said, let's do a flashlight for this episode. And I said, okay, that's fine. I was very excited. I had clicked on the link and I had like looked at it and I was like, sure. It's like a science fair project. That's fine. And then I didn't look at it again until I had to actually build this thing. I realized so quickly that I haven't had to like do anything like this, maybe ever, but definitely not since like middle school. <laughs> and I realized a lot of things. One of them is um, places where I went wrong. I definitely bought the wrong size paper cup okay. to put on the end, but I was committed to using it because I paid for it. The instructions severely underestimate the amount of electrical tape that you should be using. And so I did not use enough electrical tape. And so then I had to go back and rebuild this thing. I assembled, disassembled, and reassembled this flashlight to try and make it work maybe at least seven times. Oh if my not more. gosh, Kate. I could not get it to work. I could not get it to work. I had to dissemble the whole thing, I think, once. And then I just used tape. A lot, a lot of tape to make it work. Okay. Why were the instructions so bad? The instructions are for children and they're so bad. Oh my God. Kate, I, I didn't have a hard time with this one. I had a real... I know this you did. The time that it took me to make this craft, conservatively two and a half hours. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and that was after making Mike come help me. You guys. And I, and <laughs> you guys, I got this text from Kate. <laughs> like, I think she had just started the project. She must have been like 15 minutes into it. And she goes, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write a letter to the Energizer company. 
Well, did so it took you seven times to undo it. Does it still work? No, no. Oh my God. It barely worked. It, it worked enough for me to get like a picture of it. And that was because I was holding it in a really particular way. I'm trying to get mine to work right now and I can't. Oh my gosh. Mine, I like got a picture of it and then I set it down and it immediately fell apart again. Like this thing was like not working. My husband he got his degree in computer engineering, which is a combination of software engineering and electrical engineering. And energizer batteries. He took some like very like advanced like electrical engineering courses. And I didn't want to ask him for help because I was like, this is on the like crafts for kids energizer battery page. Like I need to be able to do this. And so at one point I was just like, Mike, I have a question for you. And it's just this one question. Um, how do batteries work? And then he was like, um, <laughs> he was like, I think that we're having problems here. And he, he, so he came over to try and help me like figure it out. And I was like very torn between letting him. I was like, I can't let you take over because I have to be the one who did this. And I was going to call it good with just being able to get the wires to turn the bulb on. I was like, I had gotten to a point where I was like, if I can make the wires make the bulb turn on, I don't care if it's not even assembled as a flashlight, which is why there are pictures in there of a like broken apart flashlight. That works. <laughs> that works. Yeah. Like you can see it, like it works. And I, and I was going to be like, yay, I'm done. And then Mike was like, now you have to finish it. I was like, God <laughs> fucking damn it. I was... <laughs> Because I was struggling so much. I had to like, I kept on calling it the battery butt. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to press this wire so hard against the battery butt. I hated how the instructions had no explanation for how battery powered flashlights are supposed to work. You click on the pictures and the pictures are reversed. (laughs) Like some of the pictures you click on and they're mirrored when you open That didn't help you? Oh my God. And then they don't say like, do this craft project to learn about how batteries work. This is how batteries work. And like, why does this flashlight do it? Like the opening instruction is like, this is how the first flashlights were made also. And so you're like, okay, so like cavemen or whatever, like figured this out. And so now I have to figure this out. (laughs) Earliest caveman (laughs) flashlights were thanks to Energizer battery. They give you one measurement. They say, cut this paper towel tube into Mm 5.125 inches. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And you're like, that is so specific. There must be a reason for it. Literally no fucking reason for that measurement. There's no reason for that measurement because the batteries then like float all around inside of it because the batteries are like smaller than the size of the tube. So then you end up having to tape the batteries down, but they don't tell you to tape the batteries down. I so many complaints, so many complaints because there's no other measurements. They don't tell you how long to cut the wires. I so part of my disassembling and reassembling was I was I cut and strip wires. Thank you so much for sending me supplies. Yeah, I cut I cut and stripped wires like four different times because I was like I bet I fucked up the wires, and so then I would cut cut more wire, strip it, do it. It still wouldn't work, and I was like, I think that this just doesn't work. I was like, oh, this is just a thing that doesn't work. And Mike was like, no, I think it works. I think you're just not doing something <laughs> So I also didn't have the best experience with this 
project, but it doesn't sound like I had as rough a time as you. Honestly, um, there were two things that I had a tough time with. One was probably same as you getting the light bulb to stay touching. Oh, there we go. There we go. I got it working. You see it? <sighs> you have to put the butt of the light bulb against the tip of the battery. And that sounds like it's an easy thing to do, but it's really sensitive. Like it can't be off at all. Nope. It really can't has be to be pushed. And I, I've seen the inside of a flashlight before. And I, if, if memory serves me, there's usually like a, a coil, like a metal coil mm -hmm. that is springy. And I was like, oh, this is why they do that. <laughs> so that the light yeah. bulb doesn't have to be perfectly distanced. It can just, it'll hit the spring at Touch. some point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so if I was going to do this over again, I would probably go grab like a spring or something from Home Depot or like look in our junk drawer. Barring that, I would have done a different approach to the taping on the top because the top is like, <laughs> I, well, I couldn't get it to stick, right? I used a shit ton of electrical tape to hold the light bulb in place. But then what happened was the tape created like a tent and the tape would no longer sit flat. So the, the light bulb like pops up. And so then I was like, well, oh, okay. I need to tape it from the top down. I need to sh somehow shove this light bulb down. So then I used clear tape on top to tape <laughs> the light bulb down further. And well, I, was I like, guess light bulbs <laughs> normally have like a like acrylic thing or whatever right. in front of it. So right. sure. That's what I needed. I needed something to just press it down. But I, I just needed it long enough for the photos. If I could have redone this, I would have taped it differently. Like I think what I would have done is get a coil or something springy I could stick in and then uh, some tape webbing for the top to just hold it down better. But it's not the kind of thing I feel like doing over again. So I got my pictures. It's kind of cute. I covered it with stickers. Oh, stickers. That was the second hardest part for me. They won't stick. Look, they're all coming off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my paper towel roll was like because I had taped and untaped and retaped so many times, my paper towel roll was falling apart by the end also. And you want to so, see this thing? You need to take a picture of it as it I'll stands take a picture. now. I'll take a, pi a picture of it as it stands now because it's currently like half collapsed like on my like kitchen counter. Like I I've it. just, I, I just like abandoned it. I was like, I'll, I'll deal with you later. I like would have just thrown it away, but there's like batteries and like wire and shit in it. And I'm like, I, I think you can't just throw this away. Also, they're like perfectly good batteries. I'm like, I need to like yeah, disassemble this them. and like <laughs> save these things. Um, I'm literally never going to do something like this again. I told Mike that it will be um, a nice preview for him for when he's doing this in 10 years with our kid for their science fair project because it is such a science fair thing. Yeah. I was thinking about who this craft is for. And also, it's good practice doing a craft that doesn't go the way you want it to go, right? I mean, that happens to kids all the time. And how do we teach them resilience through through failure? <laughs> I, I would have maybe at a slumber party I can see pulling this craft out like, hey, guys, everyone's making their own flashlights, but you guys are like old enough to not throw tantrums if it fails. Even then, I probably wouldn't do it. I think you're right. I think this is a science fair project. It's a good concept for like a school project or something. I don't think it's like 
let's have fun project. Like when I first like started it, I had my like laptop up with the instructions. I was like listening to music and I like assembled it. And (laughs) okay, so this is the other thing too, is they're like in the instructions, they're like, okay, you just assemble everything and then you just like turn it on and it works. And so I like assembled everything. It was all cute. And I was like, great, now it turns on. And then I like go to move the <laughs> move the paper clip over to the little brass brad to turn it on and nothing happens. And I'm like, okay, turn the music down. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> party's over. <laughs> did like and then I'm like like looking at it like where did I go wrong? <laughs> I'm like, what's happening? And so then I like take it apart. Um and then it just evolved from there. Yeah. So uh yeah. I mean, it even as it was happening, <laughs> I was like, well, this will be funny to talk yeah. about. <laughs> if I was doing a craft like this that became very stressful with a kid, I would try to just make everything cool. Like, yeah, it is stressful. You're right. Let's take a break. You know, like just join them in their misery and come back to it later if they want. But um, trying to trying to muscle your way through something that is stressing you out is never fun. So lesson learned. I was so looking forward to doing this craft too. It's such a bummer. It didn't go as well as we hoped. <laughs> no, it makes for good content. So I'm glad that we got that at least. Yeah. But you know, and try your hand at it. Yeah. Don't give up. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Energizer battery site has some fun science crafts that you can do. Listeners be warned. <laughs> you know the quality of the them. Instructions aren't great. I do want to leave them feedback, though. I want to leave them detailed Ooh, feedback. Send an angry letter. As a as a 31-year-old woman attempting to do a child's craft that did not go well. Well, next week we have our last Fear Street mini-sode. So make sure to tune in. Find out what happens to Sarah Fear and the gang. And if you do try this flashlight craft, uh, good luck and Godspeed. And please take pictures and send them to us because I would love to commiserate with you. This was Not Quite Dead. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Not Quite Dead Podcast and on Twitter at NQD underscore podcast. Follow our blog for bonus content at notquitedeadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And happy watching. <laughs>